All right, turn to Psalm 1, please. And we're just going to start in. We've got quite a few to cover today. And, um, so I'm not going to do the review. Uh, Psalm 1 is actually very unusual. Uh, you, you may have noticed this. I, by now, every one of you has read the whole, you know, the first 32 of these Psalms. And I don't. I can't think of another one in that first 32 that is like this. Uh, but it it kind of sets. I, I, I'm not sure how to put it. I'm not exactly sets the tone, but it, it it lays a foundation that is behind a lot of the other psalms. You know, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners. His light is in the law of the Lord, and so forth. Um, and and then the wicked aren't like that. And so many of the psalms we have this contrast between the righteous and the wicked, but it's it's in a little bit. Di- it's usually in a little bit different context. This psalm just just lays it out. We got righteous people; they're blessed. We got wicked people; they're not blessed. They're punished. <laughs> and later on, we see when the wicked come up. Very often, the wicked are being brought up because. They're beating up on the righteous people, and and so this first psalm we have to keep that in in, in mind that that's the the foundation of the understanding of, of people's relationship with God. Now, the second psalm, this one is is very well known in the New Testament. Um, for example, verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son today. I have begotten you. Um, I don't think the psalm was originally written. Uh, whoever wrote it originally, I don't think they were thinking about the Messiah when they wrote this. They were there. I don't know which king they were thinking of, but they were thinking of, you know, David or the son of David, you know, something like that. And. The enmity that existed between the the righteous king sitting in Jerusalem and the nations around who were all the time trying to um, harm God's people. But this is one of these. We've seen this same idea a number of times in the Old Testament, where um, someone will do something. And and you you learn the story. You think, well, oh, that's very interesting and that's great. But then when you look at the New Testament, you realize what they were doing, in fact, was acting things out in advance. They were foreshadowing Jesus. And in this case, King David and his descendants were all foreshadow foreshadows of the son of David, who was the true king reigning uh, with with his power. Uh, and we'll see this again in, in other psalms and we've seen and and again you see this throughout. I mean when we said the the story of Joseph for example, um, we saw how how many events in his life paralleled the things in the life of Jesus. Um, with Abraham when he sacrificed Isaac on on the mountain in Moriah, of course, that was a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus um, in that same place. And, and so, the things that are said about the king, the people at the time would have understood this to apply to David or Solomon or whoever the psalm was written about. 
Um, but the true fulfillment, the ideal fulfillment, comes in with Jesus. We're going to come back again to this same idea when we do uh, Psalm 8 this morning. Um, we'll see how that psalm's applied to Jesus, but it was originally written about uh, mankind in general. All right, then um, Psalms 3 and 4 are an interesting pair. Um, in, in my Bible, I have this heading that says Psalm 3 is a morning prayer of trust in God. Psalm 4 is an evening prayer of trust in God. <laughs> Which is interesting. You think, oh, what's the difference between you know if I trust God in the morning and trust God in the evening? There's a big difference. Because in the morning, the day's ahead of you. And you may see you've got a lot of problems to face. And the trust is, well, I trust God will take care of me today. The evening prayer is looking back and saying, wow, it's been quite a day, but you know, God, God carried me through it. And that's the context. Uh, that, that's the, really the basic story of these two. Um, the, the third psalm, um, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying in my soul, there is no deliverance for him and God. In other words, it looks hopeless. What a terrible state he's in here. But he says, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. Um, and so he, he says in verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of peoples who have set themselves around, against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Um, and then he closes out, Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be upon your people. It's definitely a, a psalm looking ahead toward what many people would say is just a hopeless situation. So he gets up in the morning. I don't know. I hope hope you haven't had too many of these mornings where you get up in the morning and the day looks hopeless. But David certainly had had those days. And he rose to the occasion. He trusted in God. Of course, you think about when he went out against Goliath. Most people would have looked at that and said, I would not want to be you, David, getting up this morning. You know, you're going up against this giant. But... Every every one of these situations, David faced in the same way. God will take care of me, he says. So then in, ver- in, in the next psalm, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Um, now, it's not all over at this point, um, but he he's made it through the day. And I'm trying to find the verse where it says that. Um, verse 8 yeah that, thank you Tracy yeah. in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone O Lord make me to dwell in safety so he's, he's made it through the day but it's not all over yet he's got more to come and so now um, and, and of course this is an issue a lot of us face um, when, when you know you have a major trial the next day it's awful hard to sleep isn't it but David says, in peace I will both lie down and sleep because You, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. He has that confidence in God that allows him to sleep even in the midst of a difficult situation. This kind of reminds me of the story Matthew was teaching us a little while ago in Acts chapter 12 where Peter was supposed to be taken out the next day and put to death. But when the angel got there, he was asleep. <laughs> I don't know how many of us would be asleep at a time like that, but he was. 
Um, now, Psalm 5, um, this one is another one where we go back to the morning. Um, and uh, a lot of these are very much the same. And I'm not, I don't know how much detail to go into each one. Um, let me just talk about kind of in general. We we have these. We have, you've probably noticed in these first you know a couple dozen, three dozen psalms you've read, an awful lot of them are the psalmist saying help. That that you know you'd have a one word summary for the psalm, and it's just help. And they each have some variations. And indeed, um, we would be very disappointed if they were all just help, help, help. Um, it's very important when we feel the need for God's help that we do the way the psalmists did, and that is to to meditate on God and meditate on on, on God's um, strength, His power, uh, His love, all all of His characters that give us confidence in these difficult times. Now sometimes the meditation goes back in history and they look back, God, remember what you did way back there You know, when you took the children of Israel across the Red Sea or, or something like that. And, and we can do that. If, if we've spent our time in the Word, we, we, we'll be able to bring up stories in our minds at, at times and we can remind ourselves that God has done it in the past. He can do it again. In this particular psalm, in verse 4, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. And, and so the psalmist is looking at the fact that, you know, God, you know, I'm trying to do what's right. And I know you hate those who do sin. And, and I'm confident you'll take care of me. Um, the, the, the psalms are something where we need to be familiar with them so that when the crisis comes, we can pull up one that will will guide us in the right way. Um, I mean, you know how when when trials come in life, they, it often comes just like that. Everything's going well, and then suddenly, bam! And that can really throw you off balance. But if if we've spent our time thinking about these psalms and thinking about what they tell us about God, then we can pray these same prayers at that time. Uh, the, the book of Psalms is not something teach, it, it does not teach anything new about God's law. God's law had been finished at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. There's no new laws in, in, in the book of Psalms. It doesn't tell us anything new about history. We've gone through all these historical books. We've learned all these interesting things. But the book of Psalms isn't there to teach us that. Primarily, the book of Psalms is to try to help us get into the heart of of a godly person as he stands alone before God. And we need that. We need When the trials come, we need to be able to, just like the psalmist, to go to God and say, help Lord. And I know you don't, you're not going to reward the wicked. Help me. And of course, as we read some of these, we say, wow, you know, I've never been in a situation that bad. And I hope you never are. But some people are, and they need this when that time comes. Yeah. Yeah. I was just listening all the way in this morning to what I feel and many times there were passages or statements that we do well remember. Absolutely, yes. Right. Uh, 
Word. Right. Jesus, Jesus and the apostles that they were very uh, full of the of the Psalms. Yes. Uh, some of these Psalms later in the book, there, there's a group of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, and the Jews in Jesus' day would would chant these Psalms as they're going on the journey up to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. Um, and so, of course, many of these psalms would have been familiar to the people because they, they would hear them sung in the temple or they might have sung them in a synagogue service on the Sabbath day. Um, some of them are familiar to us because we sing them in our, in our songbook too. Some of them, you, re- you read them, you say, I don't think we'd ever make a song out of that. <laughs> and I'd probably agree. They're they're all over the map in terms of where they might where they might be best used. Um, some of them just describe a situation that you know none of us have ever been familiar with, and I hope we never are because it was just a really really terrible situation. We'll see some of those later in the book. All right, um, Psalm six is one of a group of seven psalms, but they don't follow in order. They're just scattered throughout the psalms. They're called penitential psalms. They, they are psalms of repentance. There, there are seven of them. I can't name them to you, but we, there's two of them that we have in, in today's lesson. Psalm 6 and Psalm 32. Assuming I can get that far but in the next 30 minutes. Um, this one... The others are much stronger in my judgment. In this particular psalm, it's obvious that the psalmist recognizes he sinned, but he doesn't talk much at all about his sin. He just talks about how bad he feels, which, of course, is an important part of it. But And he's bad because God has rebuked him. O Lord, do not rebuke me in Your anger, nor chasten me in Your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. Well, we we need to have that attitude when we when we realize we've sinned. We need to have that attitude. It, it, if, if our attitude is, yeah, I messed up, you know, everybody does. I mean, if that's our view. We don't have the heart of the psalmist here. When when we've sinned, it needs to it needs to be a serious matter, and we'll see this more as we look at at at, at later ones like this. But um, this is the first of them. And and he he says in verse nine, the Lord has heard my prayer. The Lord receives my my uh, my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. He has gotten the, the forgiveness that he wants, and and that's what we want as well. When we find ourselves, as too often we do, that we have sinned. Um, now Psalm seven, right back to the help, Lord Psalms. <laughs> um, Oh Lord my God, and you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. And a number of David's psalms have this same theme where there is an enemy, a real person that's after David. Now, do you know in your study of the history of David's life, were there any people like that? Saul was one, yeah. Um, and then later on, Absalom, his son. Um, and just from reading the Psalms, I have a suspicion there was more. <laughs> just because some of them don't seem to fit either of those stories. But um, 
Well, uh, yeah, Shimei, I don't, he wasn't a, as big a threat to David, but certainly was an enemy. And of course, there were also foreign enemies, the Philistines and others like that. And notice what David says in verse 3, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. He, David is looking at this and says, Lord, I don't deserve this. And how often is it true that wicked people beat up on righteous people and the righteous person does not at all deserve it? I mean, certainly, I mean, we've all seen people getting beaten up on that we look at them and say, He had that coming. <laughs> I mean, just the way that they behave. I mean, it may, what, what's happening to him may not be legal, and, and the person who's beating up on him may get arrested for it. But you still know the guy had it coming. <laughs> but David looks at this and says, Lord, you know, I haven't done anything to, to deserve this. And certainly when you think of, of, of Saul, I mean, he had been loyal to Saul. He does not deserve the way Saul was behaving. And so he's asking God, you know, man, this goes back to Psalm 1. You know, who may dwell in the presence of the Lord? And David says, I'm, I'm living that way. And these people that are beating up on me are, are wicked. Lord, please do something about it. <laughs> and, um, and he closes with a, a, a psalm of a prayer of confidence. He says in verse 17, I will give thanks to the Lord according to His righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Very important. Uh, important. I don't know that it's in every one of these help type psalms. But David is confident. He's... he's laid his burden out to God and he's giving thanks, God, I know you're going to do this. And now we come to this, one of these really high peaks in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 8, very familiar psalm. Um, we, we've got, we've got a, at least one song in our book about this one that we'll be singing later on this morning. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. This is an amazingly well-crafted poem. Now, all of them required a lot of thought, but notice some of the, the, the features here. It starts and ends with the exact same phrase. The, the first verse and the last verse uh, or the first half of the first verse and the whole last verse, they're identical. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. What's the technical term? that You folks that were in the Revelation class, what's the technical term for that? Bracketed. Alright, bracketed is good. Not the technical term, but it, but it, that that's... yeah. It's called inclusio, yes. Um, inclusio. And, and it, when you start it in that way, it helps draw the attention to what goes in between. The book of Revelation has a lot of these inclusios. Um, but there's another 
aspect that goes even deeper than this, and it's called a chiasm, which when we did the book of Revelation, we talked about that because John uses chiasm a lot in the, in the book of Revelation. For example, the, the letters to seven churches, it, it follows this same kind of structure. And a chiasm, it's a mirror. If you, if you put a mirror right smack here between C and C quote, then what you see above it is the same thing as you see below it. Uh, so the first one is a statement of praise, and so the last one is a statement of praise. The second from the first tells about God's dominion. The second from the last tells about man's dominion. And in the middle you have two. You have man's significance and then man's... Um, you have mankind's insignificance and then mankind's significance. <laughs> it, it's it's, a, it's a, very, a very well-crafted poem like this. And it's, it's a meditation upon the greatness of God and the position He's put man in. Um, when I consider your heaven, I mean, who, who hasn't thought this? You know, look up at the night sky and just consider the vastness of it all and it said, what are we? What are we in comparison? Just, you know, just dust on the face of a, a really small little globe. But then, in verse 5, you have made him just a little lower than God. Man is the highest creature on earth. And you see that, of course, in Genesis chapter 1. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. When you think about that, that is just so awe-inspiring. God, the God who created all these vast things, stars without number, I mean billions upon billions of stars out there in galaxies, um, just enormous size. And then here we are in this tiny little, really, well, there's a very tiny planet, and we're just very tiny on this planet, but God has said, rule over my creation. Unbelievable. That God would make all this and then say, and I want you to be the ruler over it. But that's what David is, is, is contemplating here. You've put all things under His feet, all sheep and ox, and also the beasts of the field, birds and all of these things. It's just, um, it's just awesome to consider how great God is and what a great honor He has given to us to have this part in His creation and actually rule over it like that. Alright. Psalm 9. Um, this is a psalm of thanksgiving. Um, and He's primarily thanking God for things God has done for him specifically. Now, he starts out in more general terms. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name. But then in verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you, for you have maintained my just cause. This is kind of the counterpart to some of those earlier help psalms. <laughs> help, you know, my enemies are pursuing me and I don't deserve it. And now he's thanking God for for vanquishing the enemy and, and, and exalting David. Um, and, and in the later part of the psalm, he, he, starts, looking, he starts applying this to other people. Um, in, um, in verse 8, He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed. He's... He, He's not only thanking God for what God's done for him, but he's, he's saying, God will do it for you. God will do it for everybody. 
So sing praises to the Lord, he says. Um, and that's about more of the same, but that's, that's pretty good. Um, let me just mention as a side point, at the end of verse 16, there's these strange words, Hegeon Sila. <laughs> Um, and there's a few terms like that. Sila is the most common one, which nobody knows for sure today what they mean. Um, but what we do know is that they were some sort of musical notation. They, you know how in our songbook you have the words of the song, but then sometimes up in the notes section you'll have some words. Uh, and the words are often in, in, Ital- in Italian, because uh, that's when they kind of invented writing music out like that. Um, we've got one song I know that at the end of it that we're going to sing this morning. It has R-I-T period, which um, it's Italian. What is it? Ritondo or Ritardo? I mean, it's something like that. Um, and, and what it means is um, gradually slow down. When you get to this section, kind of gradually slow down. And, you know, if you go to music school, then you learn what the word means. So whenever you see R.I.T. period, you know, all right, when I get to that, I'm just going to slow down. Um, you can imagine someone, you know, a couple thousand years from now, dredging up one of our songbooks and say, you know, I know all the words here, but what's this R.I.T. mean? And that's the situation we have with Higeon and with Selah. Uh, no one is really completely certain of what those mean. that they Because they're directions to the chorus and the orchestra that is performing the psalm, you, generally they would be performing in the temple. And it's, just, it's, it's something that they'll know, you know, you guys will know what to do with it. Um, so when I, when, if I read a, a psalm publicly, I don't even read those words. I, I just skip them over because in the same way as I, if I was reading a song from our songbook, I wouldn't read the RIT period to you. I just read the words um, so that's kind of a small digression, but you'll see the you'll see the word seal enough times that by the time we're done, that I figure I'll head off that question. <laughs> um, in Psalm ten, um, the the psalmist is. Rejoicing that God rules over the world, and He's asking God to rule. Um, you know, oh Lord, why do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? This sounds somewhat like the Book of Job, and there's other psalms that even sound more like the Book of Job because you know they see all these they see these wicked people just getting away with it, and um, the psalmist understands that God is the King; He's the one that deals with this, and. <laughs> So he's asking God to please execute justice, righteousness. Um, Psalm 11, somewhat similar, but in this case from... Hang on a sec. Um, No, no, I'm sorry. Psalm 9 and 10 are similar. Psalm 9 was, um, was talking about how God punishes the wicked people. And Psalm 10 turns around and says, well, God, why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you punishing these wicked people? 11 is very different. I like Psalm 11. Um, he, he's quoting from some people, and these might even be his own uh, counselors, because David, of course, was a king. He would have had counselors around him. 
He says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain? And now, what they're saying to him continues for another two verses. You have to understand, from flee as a bird all the way to the end of verse 3 is all what someone else is saying to him. For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in the darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now you can just picture these counselors. Here, here David's called this council meeting. What are we going to do? We've got some problems. Um, we don't know what the problem is. The problem might be Absalom is coming or, or you know, who knows. But some of these counselors, their, their attitude is, run David, run! If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? But David rejects their counsel. He says, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And so his answer, without ever saying it in so many words, but his answer is, I'm not going to flee as a bird to my mountain. God is the one who's going to take care of me. And how how often do we need to be reminded of this. Uh, Again, these are things that don't come upon us every day, but from time to time, tests come upon us that test our courage in God. Do we really believe that God does this? Or are we just going to run? In in the book of Jeremiah, it mentions a prophet who, who was a prophet of God just like Jeremiah, but instead of standing firm, he'd run away to Egypt. I'm sure God hadn't told him to do that. And in fact, the king sent and, and had him killed in Egypt. Uh, Jeremiah, though, stood firm. And, and you find the same thing with the Apostle Paul. You uh, hear Paul. This is we haven't got this far in, in Acts yet, but Paul's on his way to Jerusalem, and at city after city, people are saying, "You know, you're going to get put in jail when you get to Jerusalem." Paul, don't go. And and Paul's answer is, "What are you talking about? I'm ready even to die in Jerusalem." He. We find this confidence, this this courage that comes from faith, and that's and that's what we see with David. And and it's sad that that these people that are his friends and his counselors are giving him advice to run away. From a human perspective, the advice looked good, but David could see it from God's eyes, and he said, "I don't need to run." You remember the time in the book of Nehemiah when that guy was saying, "Hey, come with me, and we're going to hide out in the temple tonight." And Nehemiah says. Should such a person as me run? It just—it wasn't fitting. Everything Nehemiah was doing was what because God wanted him to do it, and he had confidence God would take care of him. Psalm twelve, another help psalm. And you feel so bad for the guy, David here. Um, He says, For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. In verse 2, they speak falsely to one another. With flattering lips, with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks great things. Who have said with our tongue we will prove. How how many people are there around us who, who think nothing about lying and just use their tongue to gain advantage over righteous people? How many are there like that? And, and what a huge disappointment it is when, when there's someone you've, you've had confidence in and you found out he's just lying the whole time. I mean, that, that's just a big grief. And, 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 and the psalmist takes his grief to God and asks God to, to, um, to punish the wicked. 
And then Psalm 13. This is another help psalm. Boy, is he asking, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Um, uh, how long will you hide your face from me? Um, but he closes out in verse 5 I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Look, let me do another aside here. Um, the time to learn these psalms is not on the spot when the disaster strikes. You'll never think of the psalm at that point. The time to learn it, of course, is, is, is when it seems to be good times. Um, one of the things we've started doing in the Sunday night meeting um, and I, and I mentioned it to them. I, I got it from a book I had read recently. Um, we, we start the Sunday night service with a psalm and a prayer about the psalm. And it's something that I've started doing myself. I got, again, I, got, I didn't think it up myself, but um, every morning I take a psalm, and I'm, I'm gradually going through the psalms this way. Uh, I just do the next one in order each morning. And I, I read it, and then I pray to God about it. It, the advantage I find, you know, as I say, your mileage may vary, but the advantage I find is that it takes me out of self a little bit. I mean, think about it. I mean, when you get up in the morning and pray, what are you going to pray about? Almost invariably, about me. <laughs> and if there's a lot of weight coming down on you, that prayer itself can be kind of a downer. Because all you're thinking about is, wow, I've got to do this and do that, and, and oh, what's, what's going to happen to so-and-so, and, and, and all of that. But if you can read one of these psalms, even a, even a psalm that is, is sad, you know, help, help. It gives you a chance to think about the God who does help. And, and and to praise God that He is a God who helps, and and of course each psalm has a little different take on God, so each morning you get a little bit of take on a different take on God as well in your prayers. But it helps us to praise God. Praise is not something that comes natural to us, especially us Americans. We don't like to say good things about people. We think it'll go to their heads, and and and, and we translate that often into. We can't say good things about God either. We're just embarrassed. The psalmists were never embarrassed to say great things about God. And we ought not to be either. And in our own prayers, we need to learn to praise God. And we can get that as if we spend time in these psalms and pray about them. So, And tonight, um, at the Sunday night, Sunday night service, I, um, Ralph, I think you're going to do Psalm 5, right? He's going to read it to us and he's going to pray about it. And so we'll have another chance to to meditate on God and, and get our minds get our minds in gear for the prayers we're going to offer up because as the, later in the service we'll be putting lots of things on the board and if we're not careful we can just get overwhelmed by that wow all these terrible things you know what are we going to do and 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 but if we start out by saying God is in control. We can approach it with confidence instead of with um, um, anxiety. 
All right. Um, Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This is one that I think a lot of Christians don't understand. Um, because what we, what we think this is talking about is, here's an atheist. Here's an atheist. He said in his heart, there is no God. This is not, in fact, a song about atheists. Not atheists in, in the modern sense of the word. You didn't have atheists back in, in ancient times. The atheism is, is a fairly modern uh, uh, result of the, um, what we call the Enlightenment. <laughs> People got so smart, they didn't need God anymore. But back in, in, in David's times, everybody believed in usually more than one God. Uh, I mean, in da- of course, David believed in one God, but, it, but people, you know, a lot of the others believed in more than one. They weren't atheists. Secondly, the word fool doesn't mean what it means to us. When, when, we, when we think of a fool, we think of somebody that um, he, he's just not very smart and, and uh, you know, he, he, he's liable to you know, get lost on his way home from work. That, you know, that, that guy, he's, he's a fool. The Bible word fool means someone who is morally corrupt. The, the book of Proverbs talks a lot about fools in that sense. And so what this psalm is talking about is someone who is not, he's not an atheist in, the, in our modern sense of the word. He's a practical atheist. By that I mean, if you ask him, do you believe in God? Oh yeah, certainly, everyone believes in God. But in practice, he's an atheist because his actions show that he doesn't think there is a God. He behaves like there's no one that's going to see. Um, and... And so the, the psalmist is, is just bemoaning this. You know, there's no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. And so then at the last, in the next section, he talks about, he looks at all these wicked people. The fools. These are the, the workers of wickedness are the same as fools. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up My people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? How many wicked people are there around us who treat humans as people to use for their own pleasure? And that's what David is talking about here. They eat up the people like they eat bread and they don't call upon the Lord. Um, oh, verse 7, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores His captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Psalm... 15. This sounds somewhat like Psalm 1. O Lord, who may abide in Your tent? Who may dwell on Your holy hill? He who walks with integrity um, and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. And he goes on like this. And, um, and he lists a bunch of things. And, and essentially, you kind of summarize who gets to abide with God? The person who loves others. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, this psalm was kind of a commentary on loving your neighbor as yourself. Um, Psalm 16. Um, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in You. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides You. That kind of summarizes what, 
what I've been trying to preach for the last couple sermons about what it means to love God. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my, my delight. The psalmist enjoys being around other people who feel the same way, whose delight is in God. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is a portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. So he just re- he's rejoicing in God Himself. Um, just it's so wonderful. He feels to be a friend of God, and he saw, he closes out in verse eleven. You will make known to me the path of life. Your presence in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And that needs to be our goal to to, to grow our relationship to God until we can sing this same song um, along with David. That God is all my delight. Um, I, I was listening to a, a recording of a sermon this morning. This sermon was done several years ago. <coughs> but the preacher was saying that um, you, you could kind of date it because he was, he was talking about the people looking forward to the <coughs> second movie in the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. And he was saying, what needs to happen is you need to look forward to God just as much as you're looking forward to that second movie in the Lord of the Rings. And I'll tell you, if you remember back how excited people were that that's a tall order. (laughs) But that's what this psalm is about. That God is all of our good. Um, the Psalm 17 is somewhat similar to this, to the Psalm 16. Um, Hear a just cause, O Lord, give heed to my cry, give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you find nothing. And again, he has this relationship with God, and the relationship is because he is a righteous person. And. You have this in in the book of Psalms, as in really all the Bible, you have this tension between we want God to judge righteously and we want God to forgive us of our sins. (laughs) And the tension is never resolved outside of Jesus. That's the only way to, to, to resolve that tension. It's only in Jesus that God can judge righteously and yet can forgive us of our sins. Um. Psalm 18. This is um, we've got we've got at least two songs that are based on this psalm. Um, I believe this is very similar. In fact, it's just a, it's almost identical to the a psalm that was at the end of the book of Second Samuel. Um, David is praying this psalm. It's it, the heading says after God had delivered him from all of his enemies from the hand of Saul, um, and I. I'm almost certain that he wrote the psalm before he sinned with Bathsheba because there are statements in the psalm that I don't think he would have made after that sin. Um, But he says, I love You, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised 
and I am saved from my enemies. You may even re- remember one of our songs that has a lot of those phrases in it. The, the language in this psalm is going to be the language of, of warfare because that, those are the enemies that, that God had delivered him from. So he talks about my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. A fortress, of course, we know how, how that relates to warfare. A rock, though, is, is also... If you don't have a fortress, a rock is the next best thing. You can either get up against the rock where it protects your back, or you can climb up on top of the rock where your enemies have to come up toward you and you've got the, the advantage. So a rock is, is, is a huge advantage. <coughs> Shield, horn. The horn he's talking about here is an animal horn. Uh, a, a bull or, or um, you know, some other a wild ox, something like that, where the horn is the weapon. Um, we're not as familiar, most of us, with with the danger of horns on animals, but people that are growing up on farms know just how deadly uh, the horns of a bull can be. Um, if you've ever seen any movie clips of bullfighting or of running through the streets of Pamplona, you know, running running from the bulls, you know just how dangerous a horn is. <clears throat> and so he says, God is his the horn of his salvation. So then in the next few verses, he, um, he, he kind of reviews in a very poetic way uh, what had gone through in his life. The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of ungodliness had terrified me and all this. And then God came out, and when God comes out, uh, in verse 7, the earth shook and quaked. And verse 8, smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth. Now this is poetic. I, he's, I mean, I, I don't think there was a time when David was running away from Saul when, when he saw, saw suddenly smoke come down from the sky because God was smoking. He, he's just picturing in a poetic way the way God worked with His power and delivered him. And David is so excited about this. Um, verse 16, He sent from on high, He took me and drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Verse 20, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. See, that's why I don't think it was written after He sinned with Bathsheba. Um, but what He's saying is right and good. And, and we, all, we all of us need to live our lives so that we can say the same thing. That God has rewarded us according to our righteousness. Even though we have to, to with the same breath, recognize that it's only in Jesus that we have any standing before God. Um, and I'm not, I'm not going to take the time to go through the whole psalm, but that, that's you get the idea. I, I'm going to take the time to do one more um, Psalm 19, and this is another one of these really great, well-known psalms. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. The psalm divides very neatly into two halves, verses one through six are telling about how the, the creation shows the glory of God. Verses 7-14 through 14 show about how the law of the Lord shows the glory of God. But there's other differences between the two that I want to point out. In the first six verses, there's only one name given for God, and that is God. Verse 1. In the last 7-14 through 14 verses, God is never mentioned. Instead, it's the Lord. All caps, Lord. This is the word Jehovah. So the psalmist is making a conscious transition. He first talked about 
God. And then he talks about the Lord. And the two are the same person, but the two terms bring up different things. So the term God brings up His power as the Creator. The term the Lord, this is, the, this is His covenant name with the people of God. And, and of course, the law was given to His covenant people. And so, when we're talking about the Lord, we're talking about a much closer knowledge of who He is than we're talking about when we're talking about God. The whole world can, can learn about God by looking at the creation. But all they learned about is the God of power and might. We who are His covenant people can learn about Him as our Redeemer and our friend, the one who, who cares about us personally. Uh, and, and that's indicated in the use of the term Lord here. Um, and finally, before I close, the last few verses are important for us to keep in mind. After you consider God's glory, who can discern His errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will, I, I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. When we look at how great God is, and especially when we look at His law, how great His law is, we have to look at ourselves and realize we need God's help to obey this law. Thank you for your help this morning. Okay. Oh, thank you.